0: If not, if you'd like to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, four, fourth chapter of 1 Thessalonians. I desire your prayers this morning. <clears throat> Apparently the Ohio River serves as a type of force field in late March that keeps all the pollen down south. And it uh, seems like about the time we cross the Ohio River... Uh, This week that um, all of a sudden allergies were a thing again, uh, they have stricken my home and um, uh, my 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 voice isn't that great this morning. I'm feeling the effects uh, of having not developed those antihistamines quite yet. So pray for me uh, here today. I want you to know my heart's desire for you is that you be encouraged this morning. I know that there are many things that um, challenge us in life. There are things that worry us, that cause us to fear, that cause us to doubt, Um, just natures of life that make us busier than we want to be. My hope today is that you be encouraged by the Lord. My hope is that you be encouraged by the people of God, that you be encouraged by His Spirit. So, I just want you to know that publicly, that... I know there are things that that ensnare every one of us. And those things aren't overlooked. They're not ignored by me. They're not ignored by the people that are around you. But most importantly, God sees them. God knows them. He understands how you're affected by them. And His Scriptures have told us that He is a very present help in our time of need. So I want to encourage you today, knowing that you can trust Him that you can cast all your cares and burdens upon Him because He cares for you. And So today, while there might be much to discourage us in life, my prayer is that God would come upon your heart, that He would overshadow your life, and that you might feel His presence in your soul in a way that just bubbles over you, that it just fills your cup right up to the top, that it just begins to overflow. Scripture uses the word fervent. To describe those things and I pray that our God who is a very present help in our time of need is able to deal with you fervently today so I just wanted to say those things before we get started we're going to begin reading here in 1st Thessalonians chapter 4 at verse 1 it says furthermore then we beseech you brethren and exhort you by the Lord Jesus that you have received of us how you ought to walk and to please God so you would abound more and more for you know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus for this is the will of God even your sanctification that you should abstain from fornication that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor not in the lust of conc- I'm mess up this word conc- concupiscence even as the Gentiles which know not God, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also have forewarned you and testified. For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. He therefore that despiseth, despiseth not man, but God, who hath also given unto us his Holy Spirit, But as touching brotherly love, you need not that I write unto you. For you yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And indeed you do it toward all the brethren which are in all Macedonia. But we beseech you, brethren, that you increase more and more. And that you study to be quiet, and to do your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. That you may walk honestly, towards them that are without, and that you may have lack of nothing. We'll stop there at right, verse 12, 1 the Thessalonians chapter 4. I have noticed something about myself over the last couple of weeks, and it relates to how I respond to life when I begin to feel overwhelmed by it. you ever felt overwhelmed by life? If you say no, I think you're lying. We've all felt overwhelmed by life at different points and different times, and Uh, generally what I've noticed is there's two phases that I go through when I feel overwhelmed by life. The first is when I think that I can just somehow work my way through it and do something about it. I think that I am fully capable over whatever it is that I'm going through that I can just uh, be able to, to work my way through it by my own ideas, my own plans, and my own devices. And at some point in going through that, I've become to realize that my way is not all that good. And it causes me more frustration or more worry or that sense of overwhelming just doesn't seem to be relieved. And what I am inevitably brought to is to realize that God is the one who can help us when we feel overwhelmed by life. That instead of trying to work my way through things by my own devices, my own plans, I begin to trust Him to help me work through those things. And as I do that, what I've noticed is how God does it. And that He does not necessarily change my circumstance. But He changes my perspective. He changes my perspective. In fact, I think lots of times that's how God deals with His people. He doesn't somehow all of a sudden change our circumstance as much as it is that He changes us. And we're able to take on a new perspective concerning the situations that we find ourselves in. What we realize when we think about these things is that we know that God has a desire for our lives. Isn't that good to know? God has a desire for your life. He has told us a little bit about those desires that He has for us. He has told us, we see Jesus in the 10th chapter book of John. He is remarking that He is the door. You've probably heard that before. It's one of the great I am statements in the book of John where Jesus says, I am the door." Specifically, he is making reference to a sheepfold. and That he serves as the door of the sheepfold. And that if you go in, you there are going to find life and to find it abundantly when you go through the door of the sheepfold. Specifically, Jesus making reference to this door of the sheepfold. He says that those that go in and out thereof find pasture. But not only do we find pasture when we see Jesus as the door, but we see also that there is an abundance in that pasture. (laughs) If you've noticed this week, things seem to be a little more green. Haven't they? We see things coming alive and greening up. and We know that spring is upon us. Sometimes when we were driving this week through Kentucky, we'd go past these fields and that would just be green as far as my eye could see. And it was a beautiful sight to see just the abundance of life that was springing forth in that grass and in those different shrubs and different things. Things were coming alive. In fact, I was talking to one of Brad Hicks' sons. He asked me the question, he says, which trees do you like best, white trees or pink trees? I told him I never have given that any consideration before, which trees I like best, but I told him I like the ones that don't make me feel sick with allergies. But the reality is that there's abundance that we see coming about this time of year, isn't there? But for that which enters in at the door, for that which comes to know Jesus and trusts Him as your Lord, that what you find is that there is an abundance in Him and there's an abundance always. There is life that is found through the door. There is life in abundance. Sometimes I think we forget that. That even we who have been saved by God's grace, life just gets too much of us sometimes. And we forget that we've come to know the One who has promised us life and life more abundantly. And so our call is to return to Him that that door remains for us to go in and to go out of that we might find pasture. There are certain people that have studied this door of the sheepfold, especially in biblical times, much more than I have. But the reality of it was that it was this narrow place wherein a shepherd would lay to keep safe his sheep, that he would find rest and refuge, and that they would then be able to go out of to find pasture. It is a beautiful picture of a life that is lived with the Lord, wherein you find rest and refuge, and wherein you find pasture in abundance. So today, when life overwhelms us, let us be reminded of the door. Let us be reminded of the One who has promised us, who has told us that in Him is found life and life abundantly. So I've already mentioned that Scripture tells us a lot about this life and the, the ideas and the, the desires that God has for us in this life. And we found this here. If you listen as we read in First Thessalonians chapter 4. As Paul is writing here, he's writing to the church that is situated at Thessalonica. And Paul is exhorting and he is admonishing the Christians there concerning the Christian life. Concerning the life of a believer. I worry sometimes that believers lose sight of the fact that God has told us not only about how it is that we come to faith in Jesus, but how that we then live according to that faith in Jesus. That there is a life that follows the life that has been born again. We see Paul exhorting the church concerning that Christian life. And he begins by sharing here in the fourth chapter that he has taught them both in instruction And an example how to walk after Christ and how to please God. That's what he says in verse one. He says that you as, he says, furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus that you have received of us how to walk and to please God that so you would abound more and more. The purpose of walking after Christ is not that you would have to live your life according to some legalistic rules that are purposed for the believer, or that you would somehow have to live according to some standard of religion, but instead, that in living after Christ, you might find that abundance that He has talked about. Living a life for Christ is a life in which abundance is found. Contentment is found. Joy is found. It is when the Christian begins trying to live for themselves that they find themselves discontented with life. When they begin living for themselves, they find that there is no joy or no remaining happiness that they are able to grab a hold of. They find themselves lacking, it seems, in all things. They may have lots of stuff, but they are lacking, and they are lacking because they have left the One who has called them to life, and life more abundantly. My friends today... There is goodness that is found in the Christian walk. There is goodness in the life that is lived for Christ. He is telling them about his desire, Paul is, for them to live and to abound more and more. Same thing that John wrote up regarding Christ in the 10th chapter of the book of John. Go study that and I encourage you on the 10th chapter of the book of John. And he says, continues along those lines that they would progress in their faith. That they would be able to grow in their sanctification. We see in verse 3, he says, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification. That there would be growth and progress in your walk with the Lord. Listen to me today. If you feel that your walk with the Lord has stagnated, you feel like you have plateaued in your walk with the Lord, you need to examine your relationship with God to see what things are lacking. For the life that is lived in Christ is one that is to be met with, with growth and with sanctification that progresses in our lives. You ever wondered how it is or why it is that sometimes you meet old people that just seem like they just spend all their time with Jesus? It's because they do. But they didn't get there overnight. They have progressed in their walk with the Lord. They have grown in grace. They have grown in their knowledge of the truth. They have spent some time with the Lord. And they have seen that this life of sanctification, that sanctification is indeed a progressive work. It is one that grows and it gets greater and it builds upon itself. That's why it's so important that we as a church, when we see young Christians among us, that we would take them by the hand and that we would walk with them and teach them and show them what it is to live a godly life, to teach them about the purpose of the church and the joys of the church and why it is that the church has been organized and found in the way that it has and, and all these aspects of the essence of the life of Christ. Why? Why? Because I don't expect somebody that has just found the Lord for the first time. For the first time, but the only time that they need to, but has just come to know the Lord. I don't expect that person to suddenly understand all the things in the scriptures. Do you? But instead we want to take them and help them to grow in their walk with the Lord. To help them and to teach them to grow in their sanctification. So Paul begins to explain these things to the Thessalonians. He does so in both a negative way and in a positive way. Now when I use that terminology, what I am referring to, the negatives are the things that we shouldn't do as Christians. But as we see Paul telling us the things that we shouldn't do in the Christian life, he is also telling us the things that we should do in the Christian life. Aren't you glad that the Lord has told us some of those things that we should do in the Christian life? I think sometimes we get hit over and over and over again with the things that we shouldn't do without being reminded of the things that we're told that we should do. Paul does both here. He says that we should abstain from sexual immorality. That's the word fornication. That's what it's implying. All forms of sexual immorality. He's saying that instead that we should not possess our bodies after lustful passions, but instead that we should possess our bodies as vessels of sanctification and of honor. Let me tell you something about your body today. You have become the dwelling place of God. If you have been saved by God's grace, God's Spirit dwells within you. You are a temple of God. God dwells within you. So then, your body is not something that is is just used haphazardly as the world seems to think of it. But instead, it is one that is meant to be the dwelling place of God. So how you handle and treat your body, it matters. All the warnings against sexual sins that we see in Scriptures are, are given for a purpose. That when you are sinning in a sexual way, that you're not merely sinning against God, but you're sinning against your own body. That your body has been designed for a purpose. That God would dwell within you. And that your vessel, your body, would be a vessel of honor and of sanctification. Do you honor God with your body? I'll just say it. I speak to a group of Baptists. We don't do that very well. As you see, sometimes we think, well, I check the boxes concerning some of the sins that we are explicitly told not to do. But how we use our bodies, how we treat our bodies, point to what we believe about the nature of God dwelling within us. How we adorn our bodies, the things we put on them, how we take care of them. They are showing to the world what dwells within us. I'll tell you a secret because Brother Kevin isn't here. I don't like going to the doctor. Never have. Not been a fan. They normally tell me things that I need to do different in my life, <laughs> need to eat better, need to exercise more. That, or they tell me that I need to get this test done or that test done that inconveniences me, and I don't like it. But it is good for us to be mindful of how we maintain our physical body. Take care of ourselves. Why? Because God dwells within us. I didn't mean to get off on this tangent a little bit here. But I think it is valuable for the Christian to concern themselves with how they handle their bodies. We're going to see more about that here in a second. I'll try to stop chasing that rabbit. He says that our bodies are a vessel of sanctification and honor. He goes on, he says that no man should take advantage of or defraud his brother. Now, all of us, I think, can get on board with that, that, that we want to be just and how we treat one another, our brothers and our sisters, and how we handle those aspects of our lives we can look back to the proverbs what all the proverb writer had to say about it. it's about weights and how we would be mindful that we would have a fair balance in our lives concerning these things but specifically the lord gets to a point here regarding vengeance and he says that the lord is the avenger that he is the one that takes revenge in all things we are not called to impurity But we are called instead to holiness. So our lives are to progress as they are further identified and declared as being set apart from these sins. The Christian life is to grow in holiness. And if the Christian has vengeance on his mind concerning the things that have been done to him, he will not grow in that holiness. For some reason we see things that are done unfairly to us and we think we got to just tell everybody about how we've been wrong and how we've been cheated. Yet the Lord has said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. The Lord has reserved revenge for Himself. That's a hard thing to swallow sometimes. Sometimes in life, we just get done wrong. And it bothers us. We think that somehow we have a responsibility to make it right. But the Lord has reserved vengeance for Himself. When we fully begin to understand that, what we'll begin to realize is that that vengeance that is reserved for the Lord is what allows us to forgive. Because when we stop trying to get retribution, when we stop somehow trying to to get our own justice for ourselves, or somehow we, we stop trying to, to make things right according to our own ideas. We're able to forgive that which has been done wrong against us. You ever seen somebody get up and apologize for something? They don't necessarily call out what it is and you don't have a clue about what it's about. And you get bothered by it. We get bothered by it, don't we? I know you do. I've talked to some of you about it. Vengeance is the Lord's. Our knowledge of a situation is not necessary for us to practice forgiveness. We can trust the Lord that He will make things right. I'm really glad of that. It takes a worry off my mind. It removes a burden from my shoulders. God is not looking for me to be the one that brings about justice in the world. He's got it covered. (laughs) In fact, what he has told us instead is that we are to point others to him, the one who is both just and the justifier of those that come to believe. That's one of the great mysteries of the gospel, is that God has become both just, just in his judgment, And you say, how can a judge be just if it is that He allows us to go unpunished? But He has become the justifier and that the punishment has been heaped upon His Son so that we can find freedom in life. Vengeance is mine. It is reserved for the Lord. And Paul says something that should cause us to pause. He continues... He says that those that reject these teachings are not rejecting man, but they are rejecting God. He says, you're not rejecting me by refusing the things that I am teaching to you. He says, i taught these things to you not only in, in the words that I've said, but I've taught you by example. He said you're not rejecting me, but you are rejecting God. Paul continues then in the positive. The things that we should do. He tells them, but as touching brotherly love concerning that love that we are to have one for another. He says, I don't need to teach you about that again because you have heard from God yourselves that you are to love one another. That's a commandment of Jesus, isn't it? He says, a new commandment that I've given unto you that you are to love one another. We have heard Jesus in different times remark about how it is that our love that we have for God and our love that we have for one another, that all the law and the prophets hang on those two. That we are to love the Lord our God with our, all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength. And we are to love our neighbor as ourself and that on these two hang all the law and the prophets. He is exhorting us to love. And Paul commends the church. He says, we know that you do this, that you show love towards all the brethren which are in all of Macedonia, all the area. He says, but we beseech you, brethren, that you increase more and more. So Paul tells them, not only does he commend them for their love, but he encourages them to love even more. I've heard this said before, and I want to encourage you in this as well, that the life of the believer, the nature of the church, is that we just try to outdo one another in how we love each other. You show love to me, and so I want to show you love back that just takes it up a level. And then you see how I have loved you back and so you do the same, and it just starts building upon itself. Before you know it, the whole world seems that we just love each other all this all like this because we love the Lord. That's what it means to prefer one another. Here a couple of weeks ago I talked about submitting yourselves one to another. That's the essence of a life that is lived for Christ and how we show love one towards another. I've got some really good neighbors at home on either side of me, good people helped us at different times, encouraged us at different times, and kept me outside in the backyard talking longer than my wife would like sometimes. But the nature of being a good neighbor is that we show love towards them, and we try to talk with them and see how things are going on in their lives, and when we see things that are going on that, that aren't good, that we try to find means to encourage them. Why do we do that? Is it it is merely that we're trying to be good people, Or instead, is it that the love that we would show to our neighbors points to the love that God has for us? I think that's pretty cool. That we are able to commend ourselves to all men. How? By showing love one towards another. That's what Paul is writing to the Thessalonians. That They would just keep abounding in that love. I think sometimes we have a tendency to say, well, I love everybody. I'll check that box. Paul says to keep loving more and more. And then finally, he gets to what I really wanted to focus on today as I'm a half hour in already. He says that you study to be quiet. Study to be quiet. Now, there's some King James language there. (laughs) To study to be quiet. Sometimes though I like the way that the King James puts things because it makes it more memorable. You ever heard where it says to quit ye like men? It says that. Does that mean we're supposed to be quitters? No. What the actual word means, the translation means, is to be brave like a man. I like that. If it just said be brave like a man, it would be easier to read over. When it says quit ye like a man, it makes you dig into it. And it sticks out a little further. That's what this does. It says study to be quiet. Now, there's sometimes I wish my kids would study to be quiet. But that's not exactly what he's talking about. He is saying to aspire to live a quiet life. That believers are to aspire to live a quiet life. That believers are to aspire to mind their own business. To work with our own hands. Paul says as we have commanded you. As we have commanded you. To live a quiet life. To attend to your own business. And to work with your own hands. What are your ambitions? What are the things that you have set as goals in your life? As desires in your life? What do you aspire to be? Now I want you to know if there's nothing wrong with, with being ambitious, it's good to have ambitions. So long as those ambitions don't have you. Sometimes we marry ourselves to ambitions and the things that we want to accomplish in life. And we set out only that our lives would be led in a way that we might be able to accomplish those things that we want to accomplish. Listen to me, whatever your ambitions are in life, they are all well and good, so long as your life is organized and positioned to live for the Lord. If the things that you aspire to along the way come about, then that is wonderful. But our lives are to be organized and constructed in a way that we can more evidently and well live for the Lord. You hear me? Many people today construct their lives around how they can better accomplish the things that they want to accomplish. And so they will make changes to be able to do that better. They will change the hours that they work or the hours that they sleep, the hours that they do this or do that. They will make all these accommodations in their lives to accomplish worldly aspirations. Our lives should be lived and organized in a way that we can live for the Lord the very best that we can. And whatever those aspirations that you have, let us aspire first to live a life for Christ. And let everything else be added unto that. Isn't that what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount? But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. We sing a song with the kids that has that as kind of a memory verse. And it says, Ain't all these things will be added unto you? Hallelujah! Hallelujah! That we would aspire to live a quiet life. When we think about how we live a quiet life and how we try to position ourselves to do that, Strong's concordance, his definition here of this to, to study, to be quiet, Carries with this, I'll just read the quote from him, to lead a quiet life. Said of those who are not running here and there, but instead those that stay at home and mind their business. That's challenging to me. If you're like me, most of the time it seems my life has about, I don't know, three, four, or five hundred irons in the fire. And I am running here and I am running there. And it's as though Paul is saying here to hit the brakes. To aspire to live a quiet life. To mind our business. To work hard. To have integrity. To live a life that is characterized by honesty. One that is upright. Why? Because there is abundance that is found in this life. My brother-in-law, Aaron Benny, you all know him. He's probably the finest song leader I've ever met in my life. And one of my favorite things about this past week is that he led singing all week down at Old Union. I've watched him lead singing a lot over the course of my life, and I know he's going to watch this, and so he'll probably text me and have things to say to me about it. But I've watched him lead singing a lot in my life, And just how He puts every fiber of His being into that. And I've wondered a lot about how does someone do that? I think it takes two things. The first directly influences the second. The first is knowing who you're singing about. And that when you are singing for the Lord, that you give it all of your energy to lift Him up and to exalt Him. And that impacts the second. And that you don't care what anyone else thinks about how you're doing that if you're doing it for the Lord. I think about how he leads singing and how he'll walk across the front of a room and and really be encouraging others and singing to the Lord. And he is able to do that because he is more concerned about who he is singing to and who he is singing for than he is about what other people think about him. Most of the time, we are inhibited by our pride. And not pride in the ways that we think about it, but we're inhibited by it because we care more about what people think about us than what we think about the Lord. And if you can't say amen to that, just say ouch. Because it's the truth. And I know it's the truth because I have the same tendency where I end up caring more about what somebody else thinks than it inhibits me. I preached a message several years ago here at the church about lifting holy hands to the Lord. That's not a character of faith church. We don't do that very much. But it's a biblical thing to do. To raise holy hands to the Lord. It's a good thing for us to do. Do you know why it's such a good thing for us to do? It is a way of showing our surrender to the Lord. What is the call to the police Send out when they are going upon somebody and they're going to be apprehending them. Put your hands up. Why? It's showing your surrender. We are to lift holy hands to the Lord to show our surrendering to Him that He is Lord over all, that He is Lord over our lives, that He alone is high and worthy of all praise. What keeps us from doing that? I think a lot of times what it is is that we're worried and it makes us uncomfortable. Why does it make us uncomfortable? Because what are they going to think if I put my arms up? We were down at Hilltop Friday night. They were doing the Days of the Week song. We were all standing up. And so I sat down. I thought, we're going to do the Days of the Week song. I got to start sitting down, right? So I can stand up on the day that I got saved. Well, everybody else stayed standing. So, well, I better stand back up. And so what we did is when it got to the day of the week we were saved on, everyone raised their hands. My wife and I were talking about that later. And I like that a lot. I said, because it makes people have to get rid of that uncomfortable feeling. And raise their hand. Because on Thursday, Thanksgiving Day 1995, the Lord saved my soul. And it does my heart good to raise my hand before all the people in that house and acknowledge that. It's good for us to do that. But when it is that we care so much about other people's business or what other people think about our business, it prevents us in our worship of the Lord. At the root of that, at the root of that is pride. That's the root of what causes us to do that. I want to encourage you. When Paul tells us here to mind our own business, that means to mind your own business. Sometimes, we complicate scriptures; they don't need to be complicated. when Paul says that you do your own business, he means for you to do your own business and not worry about someone else's Now. I know that I pick on social media a lot and there are some good things to it i'm We're streaming right now on social media. It's not all bad, but let me tell you this: one of the ways in which social media is Crippling to God's people is in this way. The very nature of social media, the very essence of it, is that you don't mind your own business. You post your business for everyone else to mind, and they post their business for you to mind. It's like a nosy neighbor, social media is. I said I had good neighbors, not nosy ones. Paul says, to make it your ambition, to make it the desire of your life to live quiet, to mind your business, to work hard, to live with honesty and integrity. I'm going to try to close here in a moment. But lest you think that this is the only time or the first time that Paul has provided instruction like this, let me tell you that it isn't. We see in Romans chapter 12, verse 17 through 18, Paul says, this is recompense to no man evil for evil. We talked about that a little bit earlier, didn't we? He says, provide things honest in the sight of all men. We talked about that too. If it be possible, as much as it lies in you, as much as it is up to you, live peaceably with all men. What did Jesus say about that in the Sermon on the Mount? He said, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the children of God. Let me say this in the language of 2021. Christian life should not be characterized by drama. You ever heard somebody say, I'm a no drama mama? That should be the Christian life. That's just what my wife likes to say. That should be the characteristic of the Christian life. If your life seems like it's just going from drama to to drama, you need to examine your relationship with the Lord. And see if you have your life prioritized the right way and organized the right way. That's not to say that sometimes drama isn't going to come looking for us. It is. But it is to say we shouldn't go looking for it. Sometimes drama is just going to find us. And the Lord's going to try us through that and test us through that. And we need to lean on Him through those trials. But we shouldn't go looking for drama. When evil is done to us, we're not going to look to, to go looking to make that right by returning evil for evil. It turns out that saying that two wrongs don't make a right that my mom said to me every time my sister did something to me wrong turns out she was right. And I was the person who got caught when I tried to do something back to her and I was the one that got in trouble. She got off the hook because I got caught. My mom would say, well, you shouldn't have done it. Why? Because two wrongs don't make a right. Who knew there was so much wisdom in a mother's instruction? But there is that is. Two wrongs do not make a right. We are to do honestly. We are to live peaceably. I'm grateful that the Lord helps us understand that message, aren't you? Sometimes what i found is He helps me understand that Just in a very simple way. Sometimes he actually has to grab me by the shoulders and and tell me, you gotta slow down. You're going too fast. Your life is going in a direction that it's not meant to go. Slow down. Remember me. Your life has become disorganized. Get it in in a ray that it might point others to me. How can we point others to the Lord? if the life we are living is not itself directed towards them. If somebody was following me in a car because they needed to know how to get somewhere, and suddenly they veered off course, and I called them and I said, hey, you're going the wrong way. You need to come back and follow me and I will show you how to get there. And if that person refused to hear me, what would you have to say about them? I would say they're not very smart. (laughs) They don't know how to get where they're going. They may find it some way down on their own, but it's going to take them a lot longer. They're going to probably have a lot more stress and fuss along the way. The Lord is a great leader. And He has called us just as He called to His disciples to follow after Him. And so when it is that you find yourself veering off and the Lord comes to you and tells you, come back and follow me. That is not merely instruction that, yeah, I know I'll do that, but I'll I'll get around to it as soon as I get this thing done over here. Instead, it is to return and to follow after our Lord, to take inventory, to re-examine what the important things are of life. I have a Sunday school teacher. He used to say in different contexts. He would say this, that the main things are the plain things. The plain things are the main things. He would use that in telling us about how to study Scripture, that the main things that we are able to understand in the Bible are the plain things. The plain things are those main things. But I think that context that he used there can also be applied to our lives. The main things that are important in our lives are also the things that are most plain. And those plain things that may just seem so unexciting and ordinary to the rest of the world are beautiful in the sight of the Lord to live a quiet life. If If the Lord wanted our lives to be exceedingly complex, he certainly could have designed them to be that way, couldn't he? Have you ever thought about the eye? God made our eyes. They're extremely small on scale of the rest of our bodies, but they are exceedingly complex. How they take in an image, and my science is right in understanding this, is that the image that, that our eyes take in is actually upside down. And then it takes in that image, and somehow or another, God's wired it just so that that image gets flipped up right side, and it gets processed in our brain, so that I can look at Brother Gary, and I can see that he has on a black shirt, with red on it, and a blue shirt underneath it, and blue jeans on and black shoes. And I was able to do that immediately without even thinking about it. If God wanted a life to be complex, He could have made them that way. But that's not been His desire. His desire is that our lives would be characterized by quiet and peaceful lives. Paul told this to Timothy as well. We'll close here. Said I exhort thee therefore, first Timothy chapter two verses one through five, I exhort thee therefore, that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority. Why? That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth, of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Paul told us to pray, to pray for people everywhere, for supplications and prayers and giving of thanks to be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority. Why? That we may live lives. That are quiet and peaceful in all godliness and honesty. Do you know why so many Baptists tend to be conservative? It's not because they want to be all that political. It's because we just want to be able to live quiet and peaceful lives. The government can do what it's going to do. I just ask that I it would let me live quietly and peacefully. So Paul tells us to pray for kings and all that are in authority that we might be able to do that. And he gets the essence of why we should do that. He says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come into the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He has told us this instruction and it fits right here in this context that in doing so we might be able to tell others about the glory of God, the one who is able to save all men, the one who is able to be the ransom and the redeemer, of all that would come to believe in Him. That there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. When we live lives that are quiet and peaceful, we are able to point to others to the peace that is in our hearts. If your life is filled with drama and then all of a sudden you stop and you say, let me tell you about the peace of God that I found in salvation. People are like, you found that? Because Your life's a mess. (laughs) Right? Maybe I'm losing, using that more loosely than I should. But I hope you understand the point. That our lives are to be characterized. <clears throat> are to be set around the desire to make it our ambition to lead a quiet life. To mind your own business. To work with your own hands as we have commanded you. Lost friend, I would be remiss today if I didn't say something to you. The desire that the Lord has for your life is that you would come to be saved, That you would come to know about the peace that He provides that lets us live a quiet and peaceful and unassuming life. That We talked about that. Scripture tells us that what we have found in the Lord, that He offers the peace that surpasses all understanding. What that means is that I can't even begin to describe to you the degree and the extent of that peace. But what I can do is point you to the one who provides that peace. So lost friends today, as we've tried to, to admonish and to exhort one another concerning this peaceable and quiet life, let me tell you and let me tell you clearly your life will not find this peace until you come to know the Prince of Peace. Until you come to know the Lord Jesus. The one that authors peace in our hearts. A peace that surpasses all understanding. Because what happens when you come to know Him and when you come to know the peace that only He can provide, when drama does come looking for your door, and it will, you persevere through it with a peace in your heart, knowing that He who has provided you peace has all things underneath His sight. Lost friends today, in a world that is filled with drama, it is wonderful to know the peace that the Lord can provide to you. So I want to encourage you today. I know that my thoughts have been primarily directed concerning the Christian life. And if you've never been saved, you haven't started to walk a Christian life. But I want to tell you that the peace that I've talked about today, living quietly, all that can only be found when you come to know the Lord. When you come to make peace and find peace through Christ. So I want to encourage you today that are lost. I want to thank those that have joined us today on the live stream. We're glad that you have.